Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Brilliant to have you back. Simon Alicia here, as always, and joined by a very special guest this week. I'm joined by Will Chong from Kit.com. G'day, Will. How are you going? Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm doing really good. Um, yeah. It's good to have you on the show. So you're in, uh, in New York, and um, you're a software engineer at Kit, but not just a software engineer. At the start, you were the software engineer. Is that the case? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, before we launch into uh, your story and what you've done, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what uh, what you do at Kit and what Kit does for customers. Yeah. Uh, so Kit, we're at kit.com, is a new platform for people to talk about the products that they love to use. So to give you an example, I'm really into coffee and I've put a lot of time and effort into researching the right gear, like finding the right grinder and the kettle and the pour over dripper that I like. So I've done all that research and I've saved all my gear into one kit that I can then share with my friends. Um, This has been really useful for influencers on YouTube or Twitch who are already fielding questions about the products that they use. And they love kit because it's easy to use. uh, It's easy to create these kits and fun. And uh, if someone buys those products from your kits, you can actually make money off of the purchases via an affiliate program. Uh, for consumers, we think this is really great because these are authentic and specific recommendations from people whose opinions you trust, uh, like friends or experts in a community or an influencer that you follow. Actually, for an example, like when you first started this podcast, like how did you find the gear that you were using? Mm, good, good call. So I was doing a lot of searching, a lot of talking. It, it took a fair bit of time. I probably should have looked at a kit, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, precisely the problem we're, we're trying to solve. We have some great podcasters on, so you should check out their gear. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm definitely going to check out your coffee kit, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so Will, we were having a bit of a chat just before the podcast, so we, we didn't want to sort of get into it too much till we got on the podcast. Uh, you've had a really interesting journey in terms of building uh, kit and the components you used and obviously the AWS components that you used, it'd be really great to maybe mm-hmm. start from where did you kind of, you know, what, what did day one look like and, and what's happened since? Yeah, okay. Uh, so when we got started, I was the only engineer at a company. We're very small. Uh, even now we're only five people. But when we started, we were just three. And, um, you know, I knew that I wanted a product that was very easy to develop rapidly. We didn't know exactly what we were going to be delivering in terms of a consumer experience, but we wanted to be able to try out a lot of different things early on. I knew that I'd want something that was easy to scale and that I could uh, continuously deliver and be able to monitor and find issues really transparently if there were anything. Um, So I'd used AWS at previous jobs at much larger tech organizations, so I was comfortable with most of this tool chain. Um, And uh, other... uh, other startups in our office space were also using AWS, so there was a big community to tap into for research. Uh, another great resource we had is our office is only two blocks away from the AWS pop-up loft uh, in Soho. So we actually went there to get a lot of advice on our initial deployment pipeline, um, and so it was really easy to get started. That's handy handy having the loft around the corner, yeah, that's for definitely. sure. So, so tell us from an architectural perspective, what did, um, what did Kit look like originally? Like, what, How did you start it? So um, we tried a few different infrastructures uh, with Kit. We um, kind of settled on uh, not quite monolithic <laughs> one uh, API, one API server, and one front end server. The API server is a Scala Play framework, um, and because I come from a background using microservices, I kind of wanted to keep some of that uh, that uh, inspiration 
I even though our app is monolithic, I kind of designed it using Scala actors um, to keep the resources and uh, responsibilities federated with the hopes that if our tech organization grows at some point, we could move to microservices quite easily is the hope. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it, it means you've sort of kept your options open, but you haven't had to, um, you know, there is a trade-off when you're using microservices that there's a lot more overhead in, in managing them. It's a trade-off to try and get some speed. But if you're in a small team trying to build something at early stages, then uh, a monolith is is often uh, indicated as long as you can get yourself out of it later on. Exactly. Yeah. And what about uh, at the data tier? What were some of your decisions there? Um, so uh, we were using a Postgres database uh, for our primary database, and we're using um, a lot of Redis caching on top of that to keep the performance and the uh, right uh, concerns down. We also uh, use a lot of data analytics on the back end. We are using a product called Metabase, uh, which is also running in AWS on an Elastic Beanstalk, and it's... Uh, great because it runs right on top of our Postgres instance and makes it really transparent. Uh, even non-technical users can make, can ask questions of the data pretty quickly. So that's really interesting because often a lot of companies talk about the need to do data analytics and actually action that, but it sounds like you're actually doing it, which is a lot better than talking about it. That's the hope. Um, I do come from a data engineering background, so that was definitely something that was a big concern for me just from the ground up building the data pipeline, hopefully in a way that was easy to get insights out of the data quickly. For sure. And so how frequently do you deploy in your environment? What's what's your deployment frequency like? So we do a continuous deployment um, to our staging environment, and uh, we try to deploy as often as possible to production, small incremental changes. Um, we are using Circle CI for our uh, integration testing, and when those tests pass, they fire off an OpsWorks uh, deploy recipe. We really like OpsWorks because it's uh, really easy to scale your instances and change instance types if you need different types of resources. And um, our OpsWorks deploy layer brings up a our stack on a Docker container uh, using a framework called Doku. Uh, so that will wait till the instance is passing all the tests to route traffic to the new container using Nginx and then destroy the other container. Oh, great. So you're doing a complete replacement model, which is definitely a good approach in terms of being sure that your deployment is clean and that you're not sort of carrying any little bits of legacy along the way. That's, yeah, again, that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great. You know, every time you build a tool chain and a pipeline, you get to build it a little bit better than the last time. Um, you talked about testing. What do, what do you use for testing? How do you get code coverage and, and verification that your deployments are going to work? Yeah, so I mentioned that our backend is Scala. We're using Scoverage, uh, which is a common Scala code coverage tool for that. And um, we have mostly uh, functional tests and some integration tests on the back end. And again, those all run in Circle CI, uh, which um, can be quite time consuming, but we wanted to make sure that we're dealing with uh, pretty, that we have a lot of coverage. Again, this is another concern that is actually really valuable for small teams, that investing in testing is is actually really valuable because the testing serves as documentation for future developers. So I feel pretty strongly in uh, writing tests that also serve as documentation for how things will be used, um, particularly if you have some functions of the site that aren't that common. Um, if you write a test case for it, then it it makes sure that if somebody writes code in the future, it will be backwards compatible with those functions. And on the front end, uh, we have an Angular app, and we're um, we're using Mocha tests for that. 
Oh, excellent, excellent. Because it's interesting you're talking about testing and, and, and the fact that it's documentation. I think you know, test-driven development as a concept is a really positive thing. Um, it's, it's often unnatural because people are like, hey, I just want to start writing code. We'll write some test cases afterwards. But one of the interesting phenomena is that if you write good test cases, you then only write the code to satisfy the test cases, which means you're writing uh, just enough code <laughs> rather than yeah. too much or trying right. to code for every conceivable case, which you may never actually see. Right. As I mentioned, I started as a solo developer. And I think that there was this time where, um, you know, coming from a larger company, it was kind of almost uh, unnerving to write code and then, you know, not have it code reviewed. Um, <laughs> so in a way, tests kind of were my logical code review. Uh, I tried to think of them that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Keeps keeps you honest when you're developing on your own. That's for sure. That's right. And so the site's a very visual site as well. So are you using um, S3 for object storage for pictures and stuff like that? Like how does the, how does the visual site work? Yeah, we are a very image-heavy site, and we allow users to upload a lot of their own content. So um, we we also wanted our kit pages to have a very editorial feel. So as you notice, there are some large images that load. And that, was a, uh, that poses some challenges around delivering a consistent experience on slower connections and internationally. Uh, so we are using CloudFront to distribute our assets uh, globally. And then um, we're also using Imagix on top of uh, CloudFront for optimizing certain image sizes on certain devices and um, on certain screens. Fantastic. And so you're using uh, OpsWorks. Are you using some of the scaling capabilities within OpsWorks to cope with different traffic loads? How are you managing that side of things. We're not using dynamic scaling in OpsWorks, um, and we have had to deal with heavy burst traffic at certain times. For example, uh, some of our kit creators, uh, like Tim Ferriss, for example, have millions of fans. So when they post uh, their kits on YouTube or Twitter, uh, we've hu- had huge spikes in new user signups, uh, social activity on the site, and kit creation. So we have had to be pretty creative about balancing that uh, traffic, uh, reducing unnecessary API calls from the front end using Redux and HTTP caching. And then also we have used OpsWorks to scale up dynamically, but it's more reactive right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's it's, it's evolving, but certainly uh, uh, having Tim Ferriss on your platform is a good stress test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So obviously you use a whole lot of different um, services, et cetera, and you're evolving the site overall. I think uh, you were mentioning you've got something pretty interesting in the works uh, on the Alexa side of things. Yeah, that's right. So up until now, we've really been optimizing the user experience for making kit creation really easily. Um, we've tried to make it, basically, we want kit to be the easiest place to make a list of recommendations and share it. But uh, now that we have a good uh, number of kit creators on the site creating content on a regular basis, we want to invest some time in the consumer experience and really we want to, uh, the ultimate goal of kit is to be able to answer the question to find the one product that meets your needs. And so one really interesting uh, platform for that we thought was Alexa. Um, Alexa allows skill invocations via keyword, uh, and you can actually now search uh, for Kit products by using Alexa with a skill that we developed. You can say, Alexa, ask Kit to recommend me a standing desk, and it will find the most recommended standing desk in our network and tell you what influencers recommend it. That's fantastic. What a great interactive way to uh to find stuff so it's really it's taking that concept of of, of search and curated information a whole level further because you're getting recommendations from people you hold hold in high regard and uh, and can get your answers quickly 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, because products are such a part of our everyday life for personal and professional development. We think that, as you mentioned, uh, searching online via can take can be really time consuming and really costly. But uh, in a world of future interfaces like voice and conversational bots, we think that there is a world where you're going to want to get the one product that you need. And we thought that the Alexa skill was kind of a cool place to debut that. Absolutely. Well, look forward to having a bit of a play with that and seeing what it can recommend to me, although it sounds like it may become expensive if I start buying a whole lot of podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Will, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been great to have you here and um, all the best with Kit in the future. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback, Podcast at amazon.com. Please tell your friends that the podcast is firing and all sorts of different topics are being covered. We'll do some deep dives uh, in a few weeks' time as well. We've got some black belt tips coming as well, uh, which is all good fun and more interviews. So until next time, keep on building.